0: When you work with your body and not against it, you'll begin to discover that you are in fact designed to heal. You think you know
1: Big Pharma and you think it's bad. But on today's episode, Dr. Ben and I interview an author and investigator whose law background and experience in the world of pharma has led him to the belief that concerning Big Pharma... It's worse than you think. My name is Jeff McLaughlin, your host as always. And with me, the man who has sent more pharmaceutical reps into early retirement. He's got the mysterious white cargo van trailing him even when he goes grocery shopping. Okay. Doctor Ben Rawl.
0: I don't know if I should be concerned or uh, or that <laughs> take that as a compliment. I think that our, it our ain't guests, the ice
1: cream truck, my friend.
0: Our guest today would probably take that as a compliment, I think. <laughs> um, and we've been talking a little bit off air, and um, the, our our guest today, uh, Gerald Posner, he was talking. You know, he used the word courageous and, and, and courage earlier, and many people aren't courageous enough, even in our today's political climate, to stand up and and really throw it out there. And and I just want to thank you for coming on because I would say that you are uh, courageous. When you write a book called Pharma, <laughs> right, and you walk through it, um, you know, you're willing to stick your neck out there a little bit. So thank you for being on this show today. I can't wait to have this conversation. I've just been so, uh, I don't know if excited is the right word because it's a heavy topic, but encouraged to get this to our listeners so people can understand about the really important work you did. but And also, and more importantly, is, is um, how um, cited and serious and, and, um, you know, your law background, like Jeff was saying, you know, you don't just throw things out there that you can't back up. Right. And, and maybe you want to talk about kind of how you approach this subject or just say hi to everybody. We love having you on here and we'll go from there.
2: Yeah, no, it's uh, great to be with you, uh, Ben, Jeff, thank you very, very much for having me today. Uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to, uh, to talk to you and to your listeners. And I mean, for me, you know, I, I have to, what I do is, uh, this is my 13th book, and I like subjects that are ambitious in scope. I, the last one, uh, published in 2015, was a, a story of the finances of the Vatican. Um, <laughs> it took me on and off for nine years. So, you know, follow the money. And this is a story of the pharmaceutical industry, the American uh, drug industry. And my approach is always the same, which is, you know, I spend a few years researching it. That means, going through private archives, government archives, uh, everything I can get in terms of uh, what's been published, uh, getting into company files, uh, setting up the first of what will be a couple of hundred interviews over time, talking to people on the record and off the record. And after a few years, I have literally you know, a, 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 the equivalent of a room full of documents inside our apartment where my wife and I work on these projects together. It's uh, tens and tens of thousands of pages of material. And I pull a story together and that story just follows the facts uh, and and the facts in this case tells a, a story of sort of the, the drug industry from the, the turn of the 19th century when it was the Wild West and everything was sold, uh, cocaine, morphine, heroin and whatever to uh, the the days of today where we're dealing with incredibly high drug prices and companies that often hide the side effects and adverse effects of drugs and the opioid crisis it's killed more Americans than the Civil War. So there's a tale in between that at times I think is like startling, startled me when I discovered the information. And sort of eye popping and uh, it will make your blood boil at the same time that you'll say, um, I'm glad to be an informed consumer because we are the consumers for pharmaceutical companies. And if we aren't informed, uh, we will just end up always being on the losing end of the equation.
0: There's so many, you know, as I've just been even preparing and thinking what questions, What I, I mean, there it's literally, you talked and I talked about this a little earlier. It's literally endless. It is Unbelievable story, fact after unbelievable, you know, fact. I mean, even a lot of your stuff you got, you know, from freedom of information and requesting documents. I mean, this is not even just hearing the years that you took and the hundred, and it's so evident in reading your book. This is not a. And anybody that's interested in reading the book called Pharma, I would just encourage you, this is not a, and I hey, I'm a good, I love reading a good old fashioned biased book to, you know, fuel my confirmation bias, but this is a book that lays it out in a way that you are forced to reconcile with some of the history. But just maybe we'll start a little bit chronological and only because I think it will help our listeners. When you go back to the early, and of course, Gerald, you'll know the dates much better, but I'm just going to go early 1900s, right? When you were kind of talking right. Wild West, and this is pre-antibiotic, and this is, you know, a lot of just, even the term patent was actually a different kind of word at the time. Those were more the negative drugs. But let's just say, I don't think people realize it was not um, uncommon at all. We're literally talking less than a hundred years ago, regularly prescribing cocaine, heroin. I mean, this was like, this was very common. And, and I, the reason I bring this up is Gerald, it, it shows the roots of a system, in my opinion, that was just chasing any sort of symptomatic symptomatic or physiological response that, you know, I've said this before, if I was really tired, And so I snorted some cocaine as a pick-me-up. I don't think anybody would say, I just discovered the cure for tiredness, right? yet. Pharma, and, and I'm just going to use it. I mean, obviously I'm not a fan, so I'm going to throw them under the bus every time I get. I have no desire to give that industry one inch of, of anything. I just don't. They've done way too many harm to way too many people without any accountability, even though they would argue this. And I just, I personally, and I won't put those in you, but I personally say anybody that reads this book, you would have a hard time not coming to some level of conclusion. It's the most corrupt, deadliest industry you've ever heard of beyond anything that you could even imagine. Okay. So that's my starting assertion. But when the roots are, we were prescribing less than a hundred years ago, cocaine and heroin on a regular basis to children and adults. My Lord, like, where do you go from there? So there's a big, you know, bomb to throw at you there, Gerald. How would you respond to that or take us through some of those early beginnings?
2: Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right, Ben. As a matter of fact, it's so interesting because I think a lot of people don't realize uh, that, you know, at the, the turn of the 19th, uh, 1900s and from the Civil War and on, middle of the 1800s, that every drug was legal, uh, meaning that you were able to go in, as you said, opium, morphine, uh, heroin was a patented brand name from Bayer, uh, who had discovered and put it out. Uh, you had uh, alcohol mixed into all types of different nostrums. Cocaine was sold for $1.50. The Amazon of the day uh, was the Sears and Roebuck catalog. And for $1.50, you can get a hypodermic needle on a small amount of uh, pure cocaine so that you can inject it. No prescriptions necessary. Anybody over the age of 18 in most states and 21 in some others were able to go in and get it. And all of what we know as the brand name companies, Started in the the binge of the demand for morphine around the Civil War, when all of a sudden they needed painkillers in big numbers. So, you know, two German American German American cousins, uh, the Pfizer cousins, with a thousand dollars they had saved up, started a little plant in Brooklyn, manufacturing morphine and making good money on it. And, and Squib, we've all heard of that. Edward Robinson Squib was a real guy. He opened a pharmaceutical manufacturing plant doing the same thing. Um, and the uh, same with uh, Wyeth, which was formed out of a Philadelphia pharmacy and got a big contract uh, in the Civil War. All of these companies, Eli Lilly was a chemist uh, who cashed in on the Civil War demand for morphine. And uh, and Park Davis was an ex-copper miner turned investor and a young salesman who saw big money also in morphine. And by the time you get to 1900, the market is still is sort of on steroids of its own because Bayer, the German company, uh, uh, drug company at the time, four years in a row or over a six-year period, actually, they discovered four compounds that really became important. The first was acetaminophen in 1897, what we call Tylenol. They discovered that in their labs. The next year, they discovered aspirin. All right, sort of called the wonder drug. Um, and then in uh, 1900, they come up with heroin, which they name after the German word for heroic, heroic So its brand name is is heroin. And in 1903, they they discovered an entire new class of, of medications, barbiturates, and their brand name is phenobarbital. The great news about Bayer is that they had decided of those four discoveries, only one was too toxic in the lab for them to actually release. And that was acetaminophen. So they didn't release Tylenol. But they thought it was all right for phenobarbital and for heroin and um, aspirin, which all made it to the ground. Again, and I just
0: I don't even I don't want to interrupt you, but I just want our, our listeners to to understand. I, I remember I read a book one time in this this person had asked a question. It was a grandson asking his grandfather. He said, hey, Grandpa, where would you have landed? You know, he used the example of like, um, you know, uh, Hitler, right? That, Grandpa, if you would have been alive then, what would you have, you know, how would you have responded? And then he asked him the civil rights movement in the U.S. And, you know, the grandpa's answer kept being why well, I would have hoped I would have been on the right side of history, right? I hope I would have understood it at the time. And then the third question, I think the one I want our listeners, the reason I'm, I want to ask it right now is, and your book does a great job of helping us ask these questions what's going on right now okay so if 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 we if they were willing at the time to release heroin out there and as we make it through this i mean there's no many of the drugs you know that we still call today oxycontin being one of them is a cousin to heroin it's why it leads to so many of these addictions and the deaths and and to also know and i just want our listeners to hear this right away Also know that since the very inception, this industry has been unapologetically built on fraud and half-truths and lies. And I don't want to force that down you to say that there, Gerald. (laughs) But you can't read this and look at the documents from Congress and, and beyond and not come to that conclusion or very near that conclusion. Is that a fair statement? Well, here's what
2: I think, Ben, is absolutely without question, and that is that you have an industry, let's say, in what we call the Wild West, this pre, you know, the no prescriptions required, everything else. And then you mentioned something like OxyCon, and we'll talk about opioids later. But what the drug industry does very, very well, the pharmaceutical business, is as things get narrowed down, as you need prescriptions in 1938 for the first time for uh, narcotics, as they start to regulate uh, some of the items and they, they make them illegal, they be, they decide that they want to be the only ones, together with the AMA, the American Medical Association, to be able to dispense the legal drugs. So, at, you know, at the turn of the century, at 1900, anybody could come up with a concoction. They were called patent remedies. You could do it out of your basement, and people did. They had remarkably, you know, wildly successful drugs, and they had no background at all in science or medicine or anything else. So over a period of time... The pharmaceutical industry and the doctors said, "You know what? We need to get control of this." And the way they did that is the government finally came in for some regulation, belatedly in 1906, the Pure Food and Drugs Act, that some listeners may know. And you think that's great, they, you know, and a great, a great character in in the book is Harvey Washington Wiley, the son of an evangelical preacher who becomes head of the Department of Chemistry and is on a crusade, really, uh, to bring some regulation to a field that has none at all. But that law. Only regulated labeling, so all it said is you had to put on the label what was inside the bottle, and it had to be accurate. So if you were using opium, you had to include that. And if it was a third of the uh, the product, you had to say it was a third. Before that, there was nothing required on the label; didn't cover safety or efficacy. And they, what, they
0: interestingly enough, just so your listeners know, that was fought tooth and nail by the people making it. Right? Absolutely. I mean, just just so people understand right away, you think that this is not welcomed with open arms. The industry, what, why? If there's not a problem with it, why were you fighting me having to tell you there's cocaine in here, right? And, a, and this is yeah. where you just, it's hard to not get your blood boiling as a consumer, you know, or, or I'm not a consumer, but people that yeah. are consumers, you would, yeah. if you knew that, it would bother you. I tell people often, if you knew what's really going on, I don't know everything, but just even your book, Helping Me Understand It, if you realize that, you would probably just out of spite, you'd probably never take a pharmaceutical drug because you'd just yeah, be no. like, I can't trust it.
2: Yeah, no, it's very interesting because you're right, the entire industry and the food additive industry, they fought that in, uh, initial law time and time again. As a matter of fact, they defeated efforts of that law to get into effect so that when it's passed in 1906, it's, it's only a, a watered-down version of what Wiley was really hoping so, but it's better than nothing. And then what really changes, though, the drug industry isn't any drug regulation passed by the federal government or the states. It's the fact the federal government in 1914 passes this law called the Harrison Act, which bans all narcotics. So all of a sudden, overnight, morphine, opium, everything else goes from being legal to being restricted and illegal. So all of those uh, items are out of drugs. And then the government, as you know, goes into this great experiment, a failed experiment on prohibition of alcohol. So now they have to take alcohol out. And the pharmaceutical industry was really left with uh, it. There was a period in which it didn't look like it had any products at all to be able to sell because it loses its addictive products. It loses all of the controlled substances, the morphines and everything else. The Bayer has to take heroin off and it doesn't have the right to mix alcohol in. And it's an industry in search of something. You know, there's a, a company called Moody's, which keeps rank of the largest American uh, you know, entities and the slices of American corporate life. When they started to cover American corporations in 1909, Pharmaceuticals weren't even on the list. They were so small. Uh, they didn't get on for another 20 years, even as an industry. They were sort of a subset of the chemical business. And the only development for about a 20 year period that made any mark at all was insulin uh, that some Canadian developers came up with. And it wasn't until World War II when the federal government decided to have a crash program. You talk about COVID 19 and a crash program for a vaccine. Government then decided to have a crash program on a different item on penicillin which was then in very early stages it was the second biggest secret program behind the uh, manhattan project the atomic bomb and that's where 10 pharmaceutical companies get tons of federal money for helping to develop penicillin and manufacture it and they emerged from world war ii as a new and different industry i'll just give you this one stat uh, ben and jeff before world war ii in 1939 the german pharmaceutical companies Bayer, hush other big ones had a, a ig Farben had about half of the world market. So one of every two drugs distributed anywhere in the world came from a German company. In 1946, right after the war, those 10 American companies that were involved in the penicillin project had 80% of the world's supply of medications and nearly 85% of the world's profits on drugs. So in a six-year period the war had completely changed the industry forever
0: so here's an interesting and I want to and I for sake of of this show I want to jump and I don't want to talk about it too long because I I don't want to get mired in the details but I think there's a moment here that allowed a lot of 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 trouble to happen so this this antibiotic penicillin you know um you know (laughs) event happens and and there's a lot of effort to do that and um, in many ways was a, a breakthrough. And again, like I say, I have a hard time giving a lot of credit here, but let's just say, cause it also has created a lot of problems, but right. the, 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 right. at the time, the view, it gave so much positive, um, you know, uh, I'm not picking my right words here, but it just, you know, it, it really made the pharmaceutical industry look very heroic, right? We mm-hmm. literally saved the world. That might be a little bit of a stretch, but it was almost seen that way. And so, Pharma could really do no wrong at that time, and they had the upper hand. I don't want to get put words in your mouth, but they had the upper hand kind of with government, even military, and all of this. It was like we saved the day and this belief that they'll just you know they're just gonna do it again, right? We just we were we're just one discovery away from the next great drug i e penicillin, and then it just it's like we it's like we put our brains on a shelf and we put our skepticism aside. And we just started, you know, pun intended, swallowing that pill over and over. And I think, would it be fair to say, Gerald, that that's when things kind of got real crazy? Um, There was massive amounts of money. Um, It was kind of a runaway train, not a lot of regulation. And people that were, you know, hellbent on pushing that narrative had no problem continuing that, even if it was well intended at some level initially is that a fair? Yeah, no, I, you know.
2: I think you're you're absolutely right. And what's so interesting about Ben, I think that you know you come out of the war and you have penicillin, and now the real DNA of the modern modern American pharmaceutical industry is laid down in the 1950s because there is no patent on penicillin. So the government made them all work together and share the information and nobody owned the right and that meant that when the war was over even though they were producing and manufacturing a ton of penicillin which had all the bad side effects of resistance to penicillin and we can talk about that later and they overprescribed it and that they weren't making money on it there was no profit because there was so much competition they kept driving the price lower and lower in the marketplace so that meant they had to find a way to make money off of antibiotics and they had to create other antibiotics so they started to do broad spectrum antibiotics, streptomycin, others. And as you know, chapter by chapter, there's a point in there in which in law, in the United States, it used to be in other European countries as well, you could not patent and own a product of nature. So if you found something in the dirt that had an antibiotic property to it, you could not then say, okay, I'm gonna put this into a medication and I'm gonna call it the Benral uh, you know, pill for good health and own a patent on it and sell it exclusively at a high price because the courts would say, no, come on, that's a product of nature. Nobody owns it. Everybody owns that. And the, in this case, you'll see Pfizer and others go before the courts in the 50s, and they, they essentially get the law changed. They get a product of nature. They're able to patent it. Not only that, but they take a competitor's drug that has been patented for an antibiotic, and literally in, an, in the lab, they change in one case one atom one atom of difference. That's it in, in, in its molecular structure. That makes no difference at all for the effectiveness of the drug, no difference at all for the way that it's dosed, no therapeutic difference. And yet it was enough of a difference according to our legal system and the patent system here in the US to be able to give that company a new patent branded drug, 17 years protection, monopoly pricing power. So the 50s sets the groundwork, as I say, for what's coming up in the future, which is. Drug companies are always looking for ways to own a brand name, sell it at a premium, and they're looking for ways to knock off successful drugs with so-called me-too drugs with minor modifications so they can get it past regulators and start to push it toward people with promo and advertising. Gerald, I have a question for you. Ben
1: and I often have these text messages that go back and forth. Uh, by the day. I think I'm Ben's, Ben's venting source, I think, in a lot of ways. And I appreciate it because it's, it, it educates me. And I know that, uh, you know, we we love to process these things just even off air. But um, the the question that I find myself constantly asking, especially like during COVID, but even, you know, before and, and certainly on other topics is, you know, yeah, but who? And, and let me clarify that, you know, because my enemy is not the pharmaceutical rep, at least I, maybe it should be, I don't know, you know, uh, concerning Covid, my enemy was not the doctor on TV, sort of giving his uh, or her opinion that the pandemic is serious and can get worse. You know, to me, it's somebody is behind this. That that's the way that my mind thinks. I'm always kind of going, all right, who who is the the sort of wizard behind all of this, profiting either in power and or money or whatever? And uh, you know, I think it's a, it's a question of today of pharma, but also you know, of turn of the century, uh, this time, and then the last turn of the century. I mean, in your opinion. Is that the right way of thinking? Is is there sort of I mean, not to get all conspiratorial, but is there you know sort of an evil conglomerate that's that's a few people that's controlling all of this? And you know, what is that for you? Do you ever ask that kind of question? And
2: yeah, mm-hmm. I, I do ask that question. And I see it, and I and I see it uh, sort of historically as spread out, meaning that it's in the boardroom, it's in the corporate boardrooms that you get this greed that sometimes c- crosses a line. And here's and and often crosses the line. But here's what I mean by that. It's not as though there's a specific cabal running it and saying, "Okay, here's what you're going to do." It's human nature, in part, in a for-profit system. Look, we've created a for-profit drug industry, in in that is concerned with public health. So you're not selling tires here. You're not selling widgets. You're not putting out, you know, just um, uh, uh, pottery, uh, uh, barn, you know, uh, items for a table or for putting out dinner or whatever else. You're putting out something that concerns people's health. We've decided to make it for profit, and once you do that. Even if you have, as 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 Ben was saying before, research scientists inside the lab whose intent is good, they really believe whether you want to argue with them or not, they're looking for cures or treatments or whatever else. Once it crosses over to the promotion and marketing people, um, and they do involve the the people that come out and sell the doctors and that. Once it gets there, then it starts to get close to the line and crossing over the line. And then what happens is, and this is where it really becomes criminal, the drug companies will have something. They'll put it out, they'll aggressively market it, they all aggressively market it, and they start to get adverse reports back about side effects that are serious. And what do they do? They report it to the FDA, nope. They report it to any regulators, nope. Uh, they, they just bury it in the back and hope it goes away. So when the pill comes out, the contraceptive pill in 1960 from Ciro, the first so-called lifestyle drug, the first drug ever approved by the FDA, not for an illness or for a disease, but for the right to control reproductive rights for women. Um, when Cyril starts to get the reports in the mid and late 60s that women have a higher incidence of uh, blood clots and endometrial cancer who are on the pill, they hide that information. It takes until 1975, 15 years of deaths and illnesses before it becomes public, much to their shame. Same thing happens with uh, with. Um, Uh, hormone replacement therapy with Wyeth, which also is putting out a drug selling to women with estrogen levels much too high. They get literally hundreds of reports about breast cancer and also uh, with uterine cancer. They hide all those reports for years and years. And these aren't two isolated examples. So you're saying what drives it? I'll tell you what drives it. A desire for money and profit, but then they're not happy with that profit that they would make by selling a drug that's been approved. So they want more and they push it to the edge. And they they represent it for things for which it wasn't approved, and they encourage salespeople to tell doctors to prescribe it for things that for which it's not approved, and then they get adverse effect reports back and they hide those, and then eventually they get caught, and what's the result of getting caught? And this you know time and time again in this book you see this, and it's it makes your blood boil. They pay an enormous fine. They pay three billion dollars or four billion dollars or four and a half billion dollars, and for them. Ben, Jeff, that is the cost of doing business. It just reduces their profits. They make more money by selling the drug improperly than they pay often by what they have to do as a fine. Very, very seldom does anyone ever go to jail. And as a result, they continue to do it
1: it's It's just crazy the fact that they can pay those amounts of money, and like it is a drop in the bucket. I mean, it doesn't bankrupt these companies at all. It probably is just something they budget for, which is, like you said, cost of doing business. But it begs the question for me, you know, we talked earlier about would I be on the right side of history? You know, it's easy to look back and project no because, like right now on this topic, we say, well, my friend, I, I've been hurt by this, or my friends or families or neighbors have been hurt, you know, by this. I love that you said, um Gerald, you talked about the idea that this is simply a spirit of greed. You know, so the question I would beg is, well, how do you fight this right now? Because we're, you know, we, we have the unique perspective of being on the other side of this, looking in and going, man, this thing is just flat out, you know, evil. So forget whether or not we would have been on the right side of history. We want to be on it right now, you know, but how, how do we fight this? How do you fight that spirit? Cause you know, I look at the stock market right now, for example, Ben knows this thing gets me fired up. You know, you think about a country right now that's, that's lost so many jobs, you know, probably for, uh, I, I, what Ben would say is a complete hoax. Is that fair, Ben? Can I mean, I put those, I, you know,
0: I mean, I, I would say it's a, perfect example you know if 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 Gerald's book would have come out one year later right um there going to be a uh, there's going to be just like and there's a huge chapter if you want to read how COVID probably ends read the swine flu chapter in in this Mm -hmm. book right I mean I think again not to put words in Gerald's mouth but I think he would say I think we kind of know how this is going to end which is we're going to find out that there was a lot of powers that be right in the boardroom that saw profit opportunities behind here and they're making sure that as this thing unfolds they're at the front of the line that the laws that are made are favorable to them Mm -hmm. that the drugs that are brought to market are ones that they can own and make a lot of money on and the care that's given is at a premium and and you have all these powers if you know I keep using that word working together and I don't want to put words in, in your mouth Jeff but even but you're saying so what does the average guy do? Well it's because you think
1: about all the jobs that were lost think about the mom and pop shops that are never going to reopen right now while big boxes were allowed to thrive think about the shift towards online retailing and everything I know that uh, some of that was happening economically, but people's lives have been completely destroyed in the midst of this. Well, and yet they're watching a stock market that is going through the roof well, as the uh, anyway. Federal Reserve just prints money left and right. <laughs> and and so it begs the question. So what do you have in America? You have the average pe- person looking at this going, man, this spirit of greed is everywhere. Like, we're not all participating in the hardship of this thing. There are people like some of our billionaires have become multi-billionaires, hundreds of billionaires, you know, during this time. And yet the average Joe on the ground is yeah. not. And well, so, so it's d- very d- difficult. That's general- true. But, you know,
2: but yeah. Jeff, it's very interesting because... I think that for the most part, if you go out onto the street and grab 10 people and you ask them for names of uh, billionaires, uh, they will know Jeff Bezos at Amazon. They'll know uh, Bill Gates and uh, yes, they'll yes. certainly have known uh, Steve Jobs in the other day and they might know, uh, you know Tim Cook or that. And they'll know a handful of people and they'll certainly know Elon Musk, um, but they won't be able to really name one CEO of one pharma company. Because the pharma company guys and girls, the men and women, are very, very good at making sure that they don't take too high a profile. They don't want to be. Martin Shkreli, Shkreli who was you know, sentenced uh, on uh, securities fraud and was the fellow who raised the price of a, a drug that's being used in HIV you know, thousands of times higher than it was and went away a couple of years ago. He's the exception. He's not really a pharmaceutical person. He's a merger and acquisition fellow who came in to, and bought a drug. But... the the pharma people like to stay off they don't want you to really know who they are and as a result they're very good at staying in the background and i think that you know you say what can people do so i'm often asked is this a book that's uh you know harder on democrats or harder on republicans and i say a pox on both your houses i'm I'm hard on both parties because both parties have failed i there are instances in this book in which you get you know a senator in 1962 Estes scoffer this crusading tennessee senator who had taken on the mafia before taking on the drug industry and trying to pass restrictions on patents and how long they could have uh, medications and if they were forced to license it and and really try to restrict pricing but that never got passed it was turned into some type of you know safety legislation after thalidomide this terrible birth deformity drug uh, had scared the wits out of everybody so you see sometimes efforts come up in the mid 70s there's some great uh, uh, you know investigations by by senators into what went wrong with hormone replacement they're always after the fact and then there are some remedies made. But for the most part, we, meaning the American people, allow our elected officials to get away without ever seriously bringing up the questions of what every other country does when it comes to pharmaceuticals. We are the only country on the planet, the only one that allows drug companies to set their own prices without any restrictions. And that's just crazy. In every other country, there's some form of negotiation, there's a commission they have to go to, they have to show the benefits of the pricing of that drug, versus what the treatments would be for a condition if they had to go through the medical system. There's none of that here. So little wonder that on average, our drugs in the U.S. for the very same drug run a minimum of three times more than any other closest country and up to 16 times more. Even OxyContin, the opioid at the heart of the the opioid epidemic that has killed so many people was 400% more expensive in the U.S., than is sold for in Europe. So we always are paying a premium. We're always paying for the bulk of their profits. That's just crazy. That has to stop. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to be able to change that. There are laws all over in Europe that we could model ourselves on. Nobody wants to do it because neither side of the aisle wants to take on the pharmaceutical company. That's a shame. So I'm outraged as a voter, as a, a citizen. I know other friends of mine who are. I keep hammering away at my representative and I hope others do as well we won't get action unless we make the politicians move a little bit all right
1: guys i'm loving this i'm fired up this is a good topic but let's take a break we'll give our listeners a chance to catch a breather. you are listening to design to heal with Design to Heal. This is Jeff McLaughlin with Dr. Ben. We've got Gerald Posner here. And Gerald, I just want to jump right back in because I have a question here. You know, you're talking about hammering away at your representative. You're a published author, right? You have prominence. You have a law degree. You've been in this world completely. I I don't have that. And I've tried to hammer, you know, I have, I I have some connections here. And in the process of trying to hammer in my own representatives for other things, it's nearly impossible to get to them. I mean, my faith in national government could not be at a lower point in terms of its representation. We have a non-representative, quote, representative government right now. And so, you know, one of the questions that a listener would be sort of be asking and what I was sort of getting at before is, you know, what can we do? And it's really like. Hey, who who is a champion we can get behind? Like, who's really speaking? I mean, obviously you would be one of those, but like, it's it's almost it's encouraging to hear your message because you're a smart guy, you're uncovering things. But then it's discouraging at the same time can because I, we kind of yeah, go, no, man, because I, he doesn't have a
2: voice any more than the rest of us zero, do either. I, 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 one of the things in here, and you you'll get this, is I highlight the problem, and the problem is big. It's endemic. It's uh, it's based on history. It's in the DNA of the way the pharmaceutical business works. Um, And there are chapters on things that some of your listeners may never have heard of that I didn't know well before I started the research on things like orphan drugs, uh, how they game the system for some of the most expensive drugs in the world, pharmacy benefit managers, these multi-billion dollar corporations that have created a role and inserted themselves in the middle of the drug distribution system so they make money and drug prices are higher. There are things that could be done with an executive order by a president if the president knew what executive order to write. But you're right, they, they, meaning the pharmaceutical industry, Knows how to game the system very well, and the incremental changes are ones that they just figure out new loopholes for. So I don't have a final chapter. My final chapter is essentially a crime family titled, There's a quote from somebody, but I don't have a chapter that calls the solution because the solution's an easy one to figure out given the size of this problem.
0: Gerald, can can I? I want to I want to jump in for a, a second here and, and kind of uh, not not transition, but I, I do want to. I've I one of my assertions, and I might have said earlier in the show, is. And partly to Jeff's question, and and maybe a a possible solution, I I still feel like we're in the stages of if people really knew how bad it was, right? So there's so many examples in here where there's a, a study that was done, and it showed this incredible improvement, and then it marketed it to all these people. And then lo and behold, you know, years later, as the study gets uncovered, you find out the study was total garbage. It was either a total fraud, or it was manipulated or lied, or the people that did it were bought and paid. And to think this still doesn't happen, it, first of all, is, is a big miss. We can't look at this like, oh, that was in the 70s. That was in the 80s. That doesn't happen anymore. It absolutely still happens. And we see it regularly happening. But but there's there. And and you said something that I think we I just don't want to miss, people need to understand that the 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 fabric of the DNA the the culture that that pharma came up in is corrupt. Okay. I'm just going to say it like that or very near. It became very, it might've started altruistic at some level, but it very quickly as it morphed post antibiotics, it became business. And there's a couple examples in the story, even where um, they had a drug that they found could really help in the third world countries with, I don't remember what the the condition was. And it was almost a cure. And, and uh, the the guy that I think it was Merck at the time, he just said, "Um, Hey, I want to give this away. And his shareholders fought him so hard because they said you can't give that away, right? Um, right. Because, you know, and because we you know that we need to make more money. Now, ironically, they again found another loophole in, if, in a sense to write it off at a high premium against their taxes potentially. But but here, so, but I do, I don't, and I think this will take us into the next phase here. I think if, if there was a guy, though, that did have a lot to do, there is a name in the history books of pharma that I think the world needs to know about right? I think there's a gentleman (laughs) named Arthur Sackler that that people need to understand the influence he had on early pharma, particularly marketing, particularly just the posture that pharma was going to take as it portrayed itself and how it did its business. I think there's a there is an enemy. There is, there is a, and I, and again, I has, and there's a lot of players, but if you were going to look at the, I love how you said, we have to look at the history. I think we really, really do. And so do you want to introduce us to somebody that a lot of people got to know about recently through Purdue labs and Oxycontin, but, uh, uh Arthur Sackler, do you want to give us a little bit there?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Ben It's so fascinating because, you know, when I started this book, I thought to myself, okay, I'm going to be writing this book about a 100-year history of pharmaceutical companies. And really, they take off after World War II. It would be great if I had a family, by the way, sort of as a narrative spine, you know, that I could come back to occasionally. And that family was involved at every major stage of the drug business from World War II and on. And it didn't look like there was going to be one because Johnson & Johnson, Squibb, uh, Pfizer, all those family companies, They, the, by the time it got to the grandchildren, they were just shareholders. They weren't running the companies anymore. They weren't involved in the decisions. And you're right, through what's called a Freedom of Information Request, where you ask the government to release files through this legal process, that takes a long time. I got files from the FBI about Arthur Sackler, and the name rang a bell immediately, because as your re- uh, listeners will know, Sackler is the family that runs and owns Purdue, that marketed his blockbuster OxyCon since 1996, with $35 billion in sales. And it turns out though that the family really had a role in the drug industry that I knew nothing about going back to the late 1940s and a key role. It was Arthur Sackler, the oldest of three brothers. And these three brothers, by the way, were first generation Americans from Eastern European immigrants. They all became psychiatrists, MD psychiatrists. And Arthur Sackler in the 50s started one of the first medical advertising companies. Now, you have to remember it wasn't until 1997 that the United States allowed pharmaceutical companies to advertise directly to consumers. All those terrible ads we see on TV all the time with 400 different side effects rushed in at the end. Uh, we in New Zealand are the only countries that allow that. So that wasn't until 1997. So before that, advertising was just a doc. This is a strange business. The manufacturer of the product, i.e. pharmaceutical companies making drugs, are not selling directly to us, the consumers or the patients, they're selling through middle people, doctors. The doctors have to write the prescriptions for us to be able to get the product. And the doctors who write the prescriptions often have no idea about what the end cost is because they don't know what our co-pays are for our private insurance that we have, whether we have it with the company or how it's covered. So it's being written by people who the drug companies are advertising to and trying to persuade. Arthur Sackler came in and said to them in the 1950s to companies like Pfizer putting out antibiotics, you guys are just essentially advertising in medical journals with boring inserts that are sent to doctors with all the warning labels about what happens with a pill. We should be running splashy four-page color ads. We should be doing national rollouts. We should be putting inserts in Time Magazine that are perforated and can be taken out and put in the middle of doctor's offices. They thought he was crazy, but they tried him. They spent more money at Pfizer on one rollout of one campaign than they ever had before, $10 million, and he made their antibiotic the number one selling drug in America. He then went on with the same aggressive marketing techniques for Hoffman LaRoche to make Valium, their, their mild anti-anxiety anti you know pill, the first $100 million seller in the industry and the first billion dollar seller in the industry. He is credited by advertising people with having revolutionized the way that drug companies push their products. He's the one who came up with the idea for detail teams, as they call them, sales reps, to make personal visits to doctors, to develop friendships with them, to give out what we now call pharmaceutical swag, gifts and other things. The idea of sending out free samples with Arthur Sackler's idea. So all of the bad effects of what we see from over-advertising, over-promotion from the 60s, 70s, 80s, and up through today, it gets worse and worse, is sort of the brainchild of the Sackler patriarch, who then becomes the very family that 1952 buys Purdue. And in 1996, finally comes up with OxyContin. They came up with the same product, by the way, Ben and Jeff, um, a long, slow-acting release morphine under a different name called MS Content in Britain with their UK subsidiary in the 1980s, about a decade before they marketed OxyContin. And that was for end-of-life terminal cancer patients. So that was the first time they'd really been involved in that type of addictive product. And then by the time it came ready to release it in the U.S. with a new name and no longer had morphine, but had oxycodone as the underlying, they decided to expand the use to everybody who had almost any form of pain.
0: So I want to I want to just pause for our listeners here for a second. I want you to kind of understand what's happening. And I use some strong metaphors sometimes, and I'm probably upset some people, but, you know, I, I look at you know, some of this, when you, if you, you don't know what you, you don't know, if you grew up in a family that maybe was, um, you know, especially with all the tension we have in our country right now around race. I mean, if you had grown up in a family and your, your mom and dad were maybe a plantation owner and owned slaves, you wouldn't, you just almost wouldn't know that that's a problem, as weird as it sounds to say that. Right, I mean, of course, it's a problem. But how would you know that if you don't have something to reflect that and somebody to bring that to light? So when you look, and when I just want our listeners to understand this, you hear more and more about you know the 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 drug, you know, pharmaceutical reps. Back in the day, they were called detail men, and you know, and you go through this in your book. But when you said something in there, if people realize it was in the fifties, this is seventy years. You've just had this deep. Buy doctors, pay them to speak, pay for their education, pay for their continuing ed, visit their offices, find out their prescribing habits, find out. This has been going, and by the way, buy senators, get in the program, remove CDC officials, remove heads of, I mean, it's so insidious, it's so deep, it's so convoluted that Dr. Sackler was a great example he owned. I mean, it's hard to even follow it in the book as you try to lay it out because there's so, literally, he himself didn't even know how many companies he had because he was hiding money in Swiss banks Mm -hmm. and different, I mean, it's literally unbelievable, right? And you listen to this, and so I just, the brainchild of this horrendous idea where it went rogue and the, and the, and the, it was, and I mean, there is so many examples, you know, evidenced, you know, cited in the 300 pages in the back. You are not going off the cuff and making assumptions when I say that was fraudulent there's one that came to mind they were using eight doctors that they said had this great you know they were giving their testimonial and they went in and they went to find these doctors and none of them even existed right yeah, to the studies that were done that, at the hospitals that of the lab that didn't even do them to the guy that went to prison for 15 years for taking 10 million dollars to being bought to do fake studies Mm-hmm. And I, and really, I it, it went, so it, it, you're na- you need to know that, that you're putting, when you're going to make a decision to take a pharmaceutical product, it's probably got fraud behind it. And I would wonder, I would encourage you to, to think, and this is not Gerald saying this, is me, really, really, really think twice about doing that. Because if you probably knew, don't you think the people that found out 15 years later that the pill was causing increased rates of cancer, you know, in the history, when they did that, Gerald, where they did this, the testimonies and some of those things came to light overnight, 23% of people stopped taking it because they finally found Um, out the truth. And the pharma doesn't want you to know that because that's too much profit. So they'll do anything from lie, cheat, steal, and maybe kill to accomplish that end. And that's a very hard person to stop. And I'll stop talking, but what do you say to that?
2: Well, you know, there's something though very interesting is that we sort of have a cycle in this country. And you're right, by the way, what you said before, people think when you said that there are eight doctors in the ad and none of them existed, embarrassed by that. They said, well, these are just for illustrative purposes. When they they used uh, two x-rays, Sackler used in one ad to make a product, number one, to show how drug worked. It turned out that neither e- the x-rays were of different people and neither x-ray was actually of a person taking the drug. And he said, well, it's just to show you an example of what it might look like. Uh, you know, this this is a family that in 1962, a Senate investigating panel, I found a uh, document it called them the Sackler Empire because... They created so many companies, as you said before, but some of the companies competed for the same federal grants. Some of them appeared to be competitors, and they really weren't. And you know that it's happening with one small company. It's happening with others as well. But one of the things we have in this country is, and the book shows us repeatedly, is we have a tendency to take a, a, a drug, especially one that ha, can be abused and has some ability then to be um uh, overprescribed and a secondary market to is created for it on the street and then we it it goes on it's considered a wonder drug and then eventually when the evidence starts to compile about all of the disadvantages the downside the addiction the possible deaths it creates an opportunity for the drug industry to go on to yet another medication what i mean by that is in the 50s and the 60s, amphetamines were, were big. Um, speed, all types of different amphetamines, dexedrine, everything else, and it created an industry in weight loss clinics. Doctors would run weight loss clinics and they would prescribe, they would buy the pills very, very cheap and prescribe them cheaply. It became such an addictive problem that as that started to finally slow up and become a big public issue, the industry moved on to what I call the mild tranquilizers like Valium and Librium, um, and those be, uh, dominated the news through the late 60s and into the early 70s. And when in 75, the the, sh- the focus shifted to them causing dependence and addiction and being sold on the street and all of the problems with them, the industry moved on to SSRIs and antidepressions and then moved on to Xanax. And then you eventually have, as those fall out of way, opioids coming in to alleviate pain and a whole reevaluation of the pain movement. So when the industry crashes from from some large sort of national disgrace, whether it's amphetamines or whether it turns out to be uh valium in the benzodiazepines or whether it's the SSRIs or opium, it doesn't stop the industry. It just creates the opportunity for the marketing of the next one. And we don't know what that will be, but I guarantee you there will be a next one. Gerald, if I could, I have one
1: more question for you and then I'll turn it back over to Ben here. What if any part of the medical system is is valid then? Like, is is there anything for you? Because I like the majority of hospital work and medical work seems to be treating symptoms with pills. So the question just kind of remains, do we even need this system, in your opinion, or should we just be, should we set bones in chiropractic clinics and just be done with it? And the rest is wellness. I mean, what's your thought on all that?
2: I mean, I, I, you know, I sort of, you know, I don't view, uh, and my wife is British, so she comes from a, a system, although they have a big oleopathic system there, but she comes from a system in which uh, you had a choice with uh, holistic doctors and naturalists and that it seemed as though it was a much bigger choice. In America, many people may not realize you had that choice in America until about 1900, until the AMA and others became dominant. And, and I, you know, people like to say they're complementary. Yes, sometimes you have to use both, no question about it. Um, I know that I know chiropractors who resent the term uh, as alternative therapy because they say more people visit chiropractors every year than visit MDs. So maybe they should be the alternative but um, I'm not a believer that one or the other is the one that dominates. I think we should be trying to achieve, but we live in a society in which people like a simple answer and pharma plays very, very well to that simple answer. It offers you the possibility. I mean, Trisha, my wife wrote a book in 2000 called This Is Not Your Mother's Menopause. It was re- published again in a revised format after the Women's Health Initiative has shown the dangers of hormone replacement therapy is no hormones, no fear. In that book, she's not a doctor, but she described her own passage through menopause without taking hormone replacement therapy. Now, it's not easy to do. She takes back cohosh, She takes a bundle of different herbs. She exercises. She tries to build up her bone the natural way. She doesn't take any um, prescription medication for that. She stays away from HRT. However, for many people, they're not going to want to do that. They want a simple pill to take care of every day. And they're willing to take the risk that that pill may have some side effects or be a bit more dangerous than doing it naturally. So you're never going to replace that. And that's the large part of the market that pharma appeals to so much is we can do it simply for you. You Have high cholesterol. You don't have to worry about eating a a, a diet that will make you healthy over the long term. You can take a pill to deal with that. Um, You have diabetes type 2. You don't have to lose weight and bring your sugar levels under that because we have a pill that can deal with that. Um, High blood pressure, don't worry about exercising, um, possibly getting your blood pressure down. We have a pill that can deal with that. And that I think is the appeal of the drug industry to many Americans.
0: So, Gerald, and then as we kind of land this plane, and there you bring you kind of bring up this point. Our our show, the show is called "Designed to Heal." Obviously, I'm a I land on that alternative, and I would probably agree with those other doctors. I wouldn't. I don't necessarily like to call myself alternative. Here's my my challenge to that. And I think your book, not challenge to what you said, but just as we talk through this. You know, I I, a lot of I remember doing a seminar one time and, and somebody came up afterwards and he said, you know, Ben, but we just they just we just want a quick fix. Now, I'm originally from the Midwest, South Dakota, actually. And so I took care of a lot of farmers and rural people and some of the smartest, most just logical, you know, people. And if I went up to a farmer and I said, Hey, you can grow this corn in two days, right? Just plant it. And the farmer would say, well, that doesn't make any sense, Ben. You can't do that. Right. He'd say, I don't, I mean, matter of fact, even if you could, I don't want to eat it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so I, what I feel is habit. I, I know what you're saying, but I just want to add this, maybe this caveat to that. The problem is when they say, just take this pill, it'll take care of that. That's not a truthful statement right? Meaning it didn't get to the cause of the problem, right? Meaning, right, right. It, you know, so I, if I feel like I can agree. I would just want to add, but also realize, because if you said to me, hey, Ben, you can either take care of your lifestyle and control your diabetes or take this pill and control your diabetes, you pick which one. Honestly, I'd probably just take the pill, Why wouldn't you, right? If it's, if it's, if it's all the same, but managing your diabetes with a pill or a shot is different than managing your diabetes through lifestyle. That is an important distinction that needs to be made because or just going to keep chasing the next wonder drug. I remember a statement I often use is there's a came out of Baylor University and the scientist said, we know less than 1% about the workings of the human body, right? So you better be, excuse my language, but you better be damn sure when you're going to start throwing man-made synthetic chemicals inside the body, manipulating physiology, having no idea what it's going to do, testing those on a, on a group that's likely never going to actually get them, lying about those statistics and throwing them on a population of millions of people like we do with drugs or vaccines and other things, and then waiting to see when those stats come in like you said hide those you know cover them up with you know some lipstick pay them off and then release the new one to tell everybody how great that one's going to be and we play this game in this cycle over and over but I would argue that it's foundationally flawed there's never yeah, going to be that pill right because yeah, there's no, not supposed no, to be
2: that no I understand that but yeah. you know it's, it was interesting and I and I talk about this in inside the book as well one of the things that the pharmaceutical industry banks on and I think they do this to, to some success is the choice that you were just talking about which is do you take a pill because your cholesterol is high um, or do you go ahead and change your lifestyle in the way that you eat so you're going to be uh, you're going to embrace wellness what pharma's allowing people to do is take the pill and still not adopt a lifestyle of wellness still keep doing all the bad things you're already doing i can't tell you how many times i've seen personally people who are on cholesterol medication right. and they're eating like crap right. they, there's no question about it. things that you know are going to just be bad for your cholesterol because they think that pill is protecting them from otherwise having serious effects. So they haven't yet adopted a good lifestyle. They've just gone ahead and sort of bought in the pharma thing. And the thing that's amazing about this, when you say it's not a clear, you know, there's no simple trade off because the pill always has side effects. As you know, I talk in there about a company that at one point has a discussion about their drugs being gateway drugs. Now we think of a gateway drug as something in the illegal on the street market. You you give somebody free heroin and they come back and they right. want more heroin. It's the gateway drug. Or, you know, they used to argue in the 1930s whether, uh, you know, weed and marijuana was a gateway drug to more serious drugs than that. Now, now, some pharmaceutical companies have talked about, and I found these documents, whether their drug, for instance, to treat cholesterol or high blood pressure, they knew the side effects that would then come because some of those side effects were clear, and they wanted other drugs in their product line to treat those side effects. So it's a fantastic thing. If you have a a drug that's causing migraines occasionally, you might want a prescription medication treat migraines. Look at Purdue Pharma and opioids. They have OxyContin. Uh, and yeah. in the last few years, they, they weren't able to do it because the outrage was already too great. But they had uh, tried to patent and look into researching a, an opiate antagonist, something that could be given for an opioid overdose. Amazing. So To yeah. created the market for overdoses in opioids. Now you might as well treat them. So this is, you know, drug companies figure it in every possible angle.
0: So, Gerald, I want to we, we're going to wind down. And I love having you on this show. I want to let people know again. So the book is called Pharma. Um, We're talking today with our author Gerald Posner has written a lot of books on on other fascinating uh, subject matters. And again, I I think you offer such a, a fair and balanced approach, but I would also say um, very, um, you know, it's very intellectual. It's very, it's always cited. So for those of people that say, I want to, I want the citation. I want to see the research. Is this just some guy's opinion? I think you will find his writing very refreshing. Is there a best way to follow you, Gerald? I mean, is there, are you, you know, Facebook guy? Are you, what's your website or what's the best way for people to kind of learn about
2: you? My my website is just, Yeah, my website's just my last name, posner.com, P-O-S-N-E-R.com. You'll see a big uh, image of pharma on the front page. If you click on that, it'll sort of show you current reviews, information, latest appearances. I'll have this uh, podcast on there once. So that's sort of the thing. I'm on Twitter as uh, Gerald Posner and on Facebook as well. Uh, So uh, uh, also there, but uh, I I try to stay uh, in touch with everything and, uh, and stay on top of it. I continue to do research. And one of the things that's critical, and I think in those 300 pages of source notes, there are stories often, because you know, it's not just a citation. Sometimes I'm telling you some information. And it's not me. By the way, I don't say this happened in 1974, and then cite a New York Times or Washington Post article or CNN report, because that's not evidence. That's just somebody else reporting that. I try to go to the underlying information, what's called primary sources. I get back to the original publication, the congressional record, the document put out by a drug company, whatever it was in litigation file. Look at that myself and make sure that what I'm citing is correct. And then I present it in the back so that if somebody wants to look at it themselves, they can go off and do that and question it and find out what what the basis is. But I think that's important. If you're talking about an industry that has billions of dollars behind it and you wanna critique it, as I have very strongly, you better have your information right or they will come after
0: you. Amen. We appreciate you, my friend. We'll have to have you back on because I think we need, there's a lot more we have to talk about, and especially as COVID unravels. And I know it takes a lot of time to get the book together, but I'd love to have you on just to, you know, as, as this is unraveling and we're learning about what happened or didn't, I hate to wait, you know, three more years to get your book on COVID. <laughs> so if That's it's right. okay with you, I, we'll bring you on to, uh, you know, as kind of our, our secret investigative reporter. And it, um, I just look forward I to would, seeing you and talking to you soon.
2: I would love that. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Jeff. If you
1: enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to support the show, give us a five-star review and share it with
2: your tribe. To learn more about Dr. Ben's work, visit AchieveWellness.clinic.